Hello there and welcome to Talking About Risks with me, Sunny Gopal. This is an audio extract from a video on my YouTube channel. And of course, if you prefer to watch the video, head on over to that channel, which is one word, R-E-D-R-I-S-K-S, and hit that subscribe and the notification bells. I promise you, there's no junk, it's all educational. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello there, thanks for stopping by and welcome to Red Brisks. Now, if you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe and help me grow this educational channel. There is a clickable link on the side here. And if there are any related videos to the video that you're about to see, I'll put them as suggested videos on the top here. In this leadership talk session, I chat with Colin or Burns. But before we dive into this chat, let me give you a bit of an introduction to Colin. Colin has worked at senior level leadership in various sectors, and he's a part of the C-suite leadership. He has successfully led organizational change and management and restructuring in oil and gas, power, health, telecoms, and engineering sectors. He's also internationally experienced building high-performing multidisciplinary teams in startups and existing businesses. He's a shaker and a mover, and Collins worked with senior government figures up to cabinet and head of state. That was a slight narrative. Let me give you my take on Colin. He's approachable, he's passionate about what he does, and he's certainly very, very easy to work with. Most of the people that I've encountered who work with Colin have said he is by far one of the best leaders that they've ever worked for. Watch this video and make your own mind up. Colin, it's really nice of you to share some time with me on this leadership talk where we're doing an in-conversation with. So um, in my intro to you, I gave an overview of what you've been doing and you've had some very high positions in industry. And I know we, we, you and I talked a little bit about some of your escapades in, uh, I think it was Ghana, wasn't it? I'm not sure. Uh, it was all, I spent 10 years in Africa. And then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <It's all over. laughs> don't give it because i want to come back to that i think you've got some okay. interesting stories on that but one of the things i do recall when i was working in kazakhstan and that's when i first met you yeah. is people used to say to me that um, colin's a really nice guy to work for i mean he's a very high up senior leader and yet he was one of the nicest guys to work for so i want to ask you how would you describe your leadership style? Okay, it's a, it's a good question. Um, not always easy to answer. I mean, I think one of the first things is, Sonny, it's, it all depends on the circumstances. Hmm. I mean, one tries to have a, a certain style, but sometimes in the case of a crisis or something like that, you, you've got to adapt. You can't always be inclusive. So it depends on the circumstances. But generally... Um, I tried to learn from other people I worked with when I was younger, some who were good managers uh, and some who were absolutely awful managers. I can remember working my first, uh, when I worked for an American oil company, one of the guys I came across at that point had been rated the most feared and hated manager in America. So you can learn a lot from a guy like that. Um, so what I've tried to do over the years, my side has developed a little bit as I've, as I've got older and matured, but... I think one of the things I've tried to be is approachable. You know, I don't want to lock myself away in a room and, and have, you know, people have to make appointments to see me. I've always tried to be approachable. I've tried to get out there. 
Uh, and I've tried to, you know, walk the factory floor or walk around the hospital or go and see people. So people felt easy coming to see me with issues and, and, uh, and anything they wanted to discuss. Do you think it's important to be approachable? Because I remember going back, um, now I'm, I'm one of these, what they call baby boomers. I can go back for many mm. years. And I remember that the, the big boss was always seen as someone you should be afraid of. You know, you shouldn't be able to go and talk to them. And normally in the past, you'd have three or four secretaries to go through before you even get to the big boss. But, yeah. but do you feel that's an old age concept now? And it's more well, I think, yeah, I think it is. I mean, there have been times, for example, one of the businesses I took over had been a nationalized industry, a large nationalized industry. And when I got there, the unions were used to coming to see the, uh, the CEO every single day to say what they were going to do. And clearly that wasn't going to work. They weren't going to run the business. So again, that was something that, that had to change. And once people get to know you, I think they get to understand when they can come and when they can't come. So I think approachability is important. I think honesty is really important. I mean, I've had to make some very difficult decisions in the past about particularly over major reorganizations about when to let people go, how many to let, you know, to let go. And they've been really, really difficult. And I felt it was important to be absolutely honest with the people, why we were doing this, how it was going to be done. So I think approachability, I think honesty is important. I think it's also important to admit that you don't know all the answers. I mean, I think a lot of managers kid themselves that they maybe know a lot of answers. The reality is, the man or woman down on the shop floor, the person at the counter, the person, the driver, they know more about their job than you ever will. So I think it's important to admit you don't have all the answers, but put together the best team that you can and make sure that everybody knows what they're trying to achieve, why they're trying to achieve it, and then enable them, facilitate them getting on with the job. You know, and sometimes this can be difficult decisions, I mean, there have been jobs where I have come in and the team wasn't up to scratch. And I've had to replace pretty much all of the senior management team. So, it's so, a difficult thing to do, but it was the right thing to do for the business as a whole at that time. Sorry, I cut across you there, but that, that sort of leads me into another question. That it's always difficult to get 100% harmony in a team. There's always going to be disagreements, squabbles, strong yeah. personalities, weak personalities. How, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with teams that you have where, say you're in a meeting and someone feels that they have to be the prima donna and they have to get the airtime? How do you deal with those things then? Yeah, well, there's always going to be disagreement. I mean, and, and if you're in an organization or a team that doesn't disagree, I think there's something fundamentally radically wrong with that, that organization. You know, people need to be able to speak out to disagree, but there's a ways of doing it. And part of it then becomes the way in which you inculcate and build a culture as a manager. I would not shout down somebody in a meeting. Um, uh, I wouldn't try to embarrass somebody in the meeting. I would take them aside at a later point and explain what, you know, what, what the issue was. But disagreements, you know, there's, there's a number of reasons I think people can disagree in a team. And I think it's important to try and dig down to the fundamental reason. And sometimes it's not actually to do with the business decision. It's to do with the individual personalities. You know, so I think it's important to try and understand what is the core reason. And I can give you a simple example. One of the businesses I was running, um, I had a senior management team, experienced people, they've been there for a long time. 
And about a couple of weeks after I'd got there, somebody had already arranged for the whole team to go away on a, a one of these three or four day workshop together. And part of this workshop was, uh, it, was, it, was it was actually quite good fun, but part of it was they asked all the senior management team, if your colleague was an animal, what would that animal be? And I can remember it got to these two guys who hadn't been disagreeing about, you know, something or other. And uh, one of the guys stood up and his colleague was hoping he was going to say, you know, if you were an animal, you'd be a bear or a lion or a tiger. And this guy, get, are they, these guys who worked together for 20 years, one got up and said, if you were an animal, you'd be a weasel. And the absolute silence. <laughs> and you can, <laughs> I can still remember. And so clearly there was something fundamental going on in that relationship. So I think if you got disagreement, generally, I mean, you got the you, you have awkward characters, you have awkward people, but generally, handling disagreements. What I like to try and do is stick to the facts. You know, let's try and get you know the guys who are disagreeing. What are we trying to achieve by this piece of work or this goal? Are you agreed at what we're trying to achieve? Are you agreed in how we're trying to achieve it? And try and tease out what the, what the fundamental what the fundamental issues are. So I think the key again, it comes back to what I said at the start. I think it's all about building a culture of trust and openness and honesty, strong communications, and also I think a culture in which people feel that they can admit that they made a mistake. You know, people are always going to make mistakes. At the levels that you operated at and you operate at, perhaps it's easy to pull people to one side and have words with them. But let's suppose that there are mid, mid-level managers and I don't want to put it in a, in a bad way, but there are managers that are at certain levels where they don't feel powerful enough or strong enough to do those things. Yeah. How, how would they approach uh, such a situation? I know it's an awkward I mean, question. Difficult. Yeah, I mean, I have been in situations like that um, where I have been that manager you know, early on in my career, that junior manager. Um, I, I think it is a, it's a difficult issue to address. I think, it's again, it comes down to trying to go to one side, speak to the person you're having the disagreement with, and try and tease out what the issue is. Um, you know, if, if you're in a similar level, and even if you're a, a more senior level, I think if you've got the right culture, people should feel able to go and speak to their bosses and have that honest discussion. I know it's easy to say, but I know it can be difficult to do. And some organizations have a pretty toxic culture and it can be very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I've known people who've worked in those organizations. Um, I know somebody very well, even today, who's going through this internal debate, should I actually stay? You know, and I think if it wasn't for the, the, the situation today, they'd be leaving, they'd be looking for work elsewhere. Really? And I think at the end of the day, an organization that does that have, have that sort of culture is not going to succeed over the longer term. It's going to eat itself up internally. But I know that these can sometimes be easy things to say, but can be difficult for, for people to do. Of course. I, I guess I've, I've been doing this for quite some time now in terms of talking to various leaders, um, various academics, um, and the one thing that strikes me is that I think some people feel that there's like a um, magic bullet, you know, for leadership, or they feel that they can pick up Stephen Covey's book or uh, someone else's book, Jack Walsh's book, and they feel that's it. They got the green ticket to, uh, to play. 
do you do you think that leadership is something that is an acquired skill or something that you're born with or what do you think makes a good leader it's interesting it's a very interesting question i mean if i knew the answer to that i would be living on the riviera with my 200 foot yacht outside i thought you already were <laughs> <laughs> no i'm currently sitting in the library of my massive mansion <laughs> i know that <laughs> um you know if you look at take jack watch is a great example you know a guy was really revered now, if you read what people think of Jack Walsh these days, a lot of negative stuff has come yes, up. Yes, there is, yeah. You know, and when I was doing my master's all those years ago, we had these, you know, from good to great, in search of excellence, all these these books that we read. Jim Collins, yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and these guys sold millions of copies. And a lot of these things were fundamentally flawed. So a lot of the leaders I've worked with have been short... Well, it's, it's a lot of it comes down to short-termism, I think. You know, when you're under the pressure of trying to get quarterly results and, and, and do well. You know, that short-term focus is not necessarily you want over the longer term. Yeah. And I think in terms of leadership, I think, to be perfectly honest, there are skills that you can learn. You know, you can learn, do presentations. You can get better as you do presentations. Mm-hmm. You can learn to talk to the media. You can learn to do what a discounted cash flow is. You can learn about marketing. But I think also there are certain attributes that, some people have and some people don't have. For, for uh, example, not everybody wants to be a leader as well. You know, a lot yeah. of people are quite happy being led. Sure. Um, but, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's a very good question. I mean, for example, what, what attributes do you think that are uh, ones that you cannot just learn or something that you're born with? I think to a degree, self-confidence. I mean, you can, you can improve, but I think you need the self-confidence. Right. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the belief, I guess the belief. Of, belief in yourself, yeah. Right, yeah. Because um, I guess often, yeah. often you, you're in a situation, I can only speak from having seen uh, some of these leaders, they're in a situation where they have to make some really tough decisions, as you have with letting people go. And you, you've got to have that belief, I guess, and the conviction to know that you are doing it for a good reason. And that's, that's what gives you a slightly better sleepful night i guess yeah no it's i mean i've had to let hundreds hundreds more than that people go Mm. you you know in in some organizations and it's a really difficult thing to do so um i've got to be honest with the the employees while we're doing but i've got to be honest with myself i've got to be able to look in the mirror uh, and say this is the right thing to do and what i've tried to do as best i can is to almost do it individually you know to speak and, and i've done this a lot of times mm. to get the person who's, who we're going to have to let go and have that face-to-face discussion, if I possibly can, rather than delegate it to somebody else. It's not always possible, but where I can. And there have been instances, and this, this one that still eats me to this day, where I've let somebody go, and it was I still believe today for the right reason. And several months later, that person committed suicide. You know, and you have to. That causes you to reflect you know, when that sort of thing happens. I mean, was it the right decision? Did that cause him to commit suicide? So when, you, when you're going through these very difficult decisions, I think not just honesty with, with, your, with your employees, you've got to be honest with yourself. But how do you, and I've how seen do you... a lot of people who, are, you know, who will take you know, huge decisions almost out of bravado or out of ego, and that's not the right way to do it. But how do you live with the fact that someone committed suicide as a result of some decisions that you made 
Well, I don't know if it was a direct result, but I mean, clearly that would, would be the implication. And I've gone back and I've over myself, I've, I've gone over the, the circumstances, I've gone over the reason why we did it, I've gone over what's happening. And to this day, I'm still absolutely convinced we did it for the right business reason, but we also did it for the right reason for the, for the rest of the employees. It was a question of we either let some people go or the business will fold. And I was brought in to restructure this business. Mm. And if I hadn't done it, if I hadn't made those difficult decisions, we would have had many hundreds of people without a job. Um, so it, that's, and you, you don't come to those sort of decisions lightly and you don't decide who has to go lightly or not. You know, so there, 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 you can get legal help, you can get psychological help, you can do all sorts of things, but you've got to have a way of doing it dispassionately and for the right reason. So, so the the expression that comes to mind is to err is was it to err is human to forgive is divine. What would you say if you could pinpoint any mistakes that you've done and you wish you had a time machine, you could go back and you could change some of these things? What do you think there are things that you've learned as lessons that will be perhaps useful for future leaders or leaders watching this right yeah. now? Well, I've, I've learned a lot of things. I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, everybody. Everybody makes mistakes, mm -hmm. and some of them have been fairly simple. I can remember when I was, you know, fairly young. One of my jobs, I was working in Australia, uh, and um, I came across you know, a lot of very interesting names. You know, people give the people, you know, interesting names that we wouldn't use perhaps in England. And I can remember saying to a guy once, you know, I'm just working with this woman. She's called Raylene. I mean, that sounds like some sort of man-made fiber. He said, "That's my wife." You know, so. I <laughs> <laughs> I learned at an oh, early stage. <laughs> I learned at an early stage to be very careful what you say about whom and to whom. Um, I've also, uh, at, a, at a more senior level, in terms of some of the restructuring I was doing, there were some cases where there were some bad apples that I should have let go sooner. Uh, and there were other cases where I was restructuring the organization and I did it quite quickly after I got there. And I didn't understand all the dynamics. This was in Africa. And I didn't understand the local political power that some of these people had. So there was a very senior manager. I didn't get rid of him, but I, I gave him a different job, which in, in his mind wasn't a senior. So he then, through his contacts, tried to make life very, very difficult for me with the authorities. So the lesson I would say, you know, the, I should have taken more time to understand possibly some of the more subtleties and some of the more potential consequences of some of the actions that I was yeah. taking. But I've, you know, I've made loads of mistakes uh, over the years. And, and, and it, it, it is, it's a part of the learning curve, I guess. I mean, the important thing is to learn from those mistakes and to move on in a, in a positive way. Are there, any leaders, yeah, are there any leaders that you would say you were inspired by then and you thought, hmm, well, there were some. I mean, I worked, you know, with BG with Frank Chapman. I thought Frank Chapman was a very strong Sir leader. Frank Chapman. Yeah, Sir no, Frank yeah. Chapman. Yeah. You know, he had his his weaknesses like anybody else. Um, I don't need to go into them now. But, uh, you know, he, I, thought, he, I thought he, particularly in his early days, I thought he was a strong leader. He was trying to get everybody to understand what they were doing, why they were doing it. And he was willing to take tough decisions. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the leaders I've come across over the years have turned out subsequently to have, you know, some, some, some flaws that, you know, you cause them to, to question them. 
So in terms of, and rather than individual people, um, I was just thinking about this. There, is, there are a number of writers and thinkers who have given me, I think, very important lessons. You know, and if you want, I can share some of these with you mm. very briefly. Yeah, yeah, go for it, please. I mean, one of them was a book that I read many, many years ago. Uh, actually, a short article by a guy called Theodore Levitt called Marketing Myopia. And this gave me a tremendous insight, and I've used it in all the businesses I've run. It basically is, what business are we in? If you don't understand the business you're in, you will never succeed. And he gives a great example of a pen company you know, making expensive pens. Mm. They thought they were in the pen business, but in fact, they were in the expensive gift business, which is a completely different business. Mm. You know, why would I pay four or 500 pounds for a pen when I can pick one up for, you know, 50 pence? So you need to understand, and I've, I've had this discussion with every single business mm. I have been in, what business are we in? You know, we're not selling what we make. We need to be selling what the customer wants. And it's not even applies just in business. When I was uh, running the hospital group of acute hospitals, we needed to understand we're not a business, but we have to be business-like. Mm. You know, guys would always say to me, oh, Colin, we're not a business. We're not a business. But I would respond, we're spending taxpayers' money. Mm. What do our customers, in this particular case, and not customers, they are patients what do they really want from us mm -hmm. and try and think so marketing myopia was a great one the other one too which which i um i thought very very interesting was a short article again written in the late 50s called i pencil i don't know if you've come across it by no, Leonard Reed. No. worth even you can get it on, on online just read it for free i pencil it's about what goes into making something really really simple as a pencil Mm. You think there's nothing easier, but in fact, there's nobody in the world could make a pencil because if you actually dig into it, it starts off with the trees, yeah. the graphite, the glue, the rubber, and he pulls together and said, even something as simple as a pencil requires hugely complicated networks. Gosh, yeah. And the way these things work mm -hmm. is to allow people and incentivize them to go and do, worry, really work in what's in their best interest, but under clearly some sort of, the appropriate rules of the game. And that, to me, was a very powerful justification for, for capitalism as opposed to states, you know, that are designed from the top down. I mean, you look at a Soviet, old Soviet tractor, you know, it's got twice as much steel as an American tractor. You know, it's, so it, 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 to me, it was a really interesting insight into the complexity of something that is ostensibly very simple Mm. And then putting markets in place to enable the, the, the production of wealth and ingenuity. Another one was Parkinson, C. Northcote Parkinson, you know, famous law, which was, you know, work expands to fill the time available for its completion. Yeah. And this was a great insight. You know, I've got my own version of that, which is work expands to fill the space available. <laughs> you give somebody a big desk, they're going to fill it with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, and from that, Parkinson's law about setting goals and, and timetables and managing any a couple of subordinate laws about you know the law of subordinates that they will intend to increase over time and so that was a real insight into goal setting and bureaucracy and the last example I, I like to give people is I like to ask them say how long would it take to build a ship and people come up there maybe take over years or whatever it is but during the Second World War the U.S. built something like two thousand seven hundred Liberty ships. 
between mm -hmm. 41 and 45 or 46. Wow. Now, these were pretty big boats. They're 135 meters long. And you say, how long would it take to build a boat that size? Well, the mm -hmm. first one took 244 days, which is not bad, you think, for a big boat. The earlier ones averaged about 230 days. By the end, they got it down to 42 days on average to build a really big boat. And they did it as, a, as a, almost like a PR example. They built one boat in four and a half days. Right. And to me, that's oh. really powerful oh. to think what Very can true. be achieved yeah. if you think and you plan. Don't take things for granted. Yeah. And yeah. one of the business labs, and one of the ones where I mentioned earlier on where I had to let people go, um, we had an admin department of 67 people. Hmm. Uh, and we brought in some consultants to see what it could get down to. And they said, maybe get down to, to 40, 35, 40. And people said, we're cutting the number in half. We'll never get the work done. <laughs> in the end, after we got rid of the consultants, we got down to 14. And we were doing the same amount of work with 14 as with 60-odd. And, and you need less space. You need fewer company cars. You need fewer medical. You know, the whole thing just... So those really are four important leadership lessons to me that, that I think have stood the test of time. And they've been around those ideas since, you know, the 60 odd years. And I think they're still very powerful ideas. You've, you've, um, the, I mean, right now for me, the elephant in the room is COVID-19 and you've, yeah. you've opened up an interesting, um, sort of thought process in my head there. Um, with COVID-19, of course, we've all been under lockdown and we're now slowly starting to come out of metamorphosis, you know, into this brave new world, this new normal world. And what's striking for me, a bit of a worry as well, and a couple of people have reached out to me and shared thoughts, is that companies have suddenly realized that, you know, we haven't got the money that we used to have and business is not what it used to be. But hang on a minute, we're still doing the same amount of stuff with people working from home. And less people working from home. Oh, furlough. We can lay people off. Great excuse. You know, do you, yeah. do you think then that there is a danger that leaders could lose some of the empathy and some of the compassion? I mean, earlier on, we started with you saying that it's important to be approachable. Do you think there's a danger that companies are now going to start taking leadership in a different way and start being this um, faceless uh, a person who just makes these decisions. Yeah, I think some companies are going to try. I mean, I think they're going to learn a lot from this, and I think there's a balance. I think I've never been in an organization yet that couldn't be operating more efficiently. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that, whether they've been fairly small organizations or huge multinationals. Mm -hmm. I've never come across that. So I think there's always scope to do things better. But I don't, I, I think working from home, I think you lose that personal touch you lose that ability to interact and you lose a real part of the organization so i think there probably is a balance mm. and i think down the road to working more efficiently i think more people will work from home mm. now it's easy maybe for us because we've got a nice environment we've got a nice place of doing it got a nice room it's quiet a lot of people are going to find it really really difficult to work from home as well you know you've got the kids screaming you've got the dogs barking mm. you're a single parent you know it's it's not going to be easy so i think some companies may try to go down that route, but I, my fear is cultures and mindsets are so deeply ingrained. And I think given time, we'll gradually go back to, mm. to a large, to really to almost to where we were before this 
this mm. whole disaster started. Mm. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting time. I, I, I think, think so too. Yeah. Um, now, I, I know you um, a little bit more than maybe some of the people watching this, and I know you're a very humble man, but I also know that I've put your sort of category as author. <laughs> you're far more than an author, but you are writing a book right now, aren't yeah. you? Is that, is that on leadership? It's not really in leadership. Look, I, I, when I was doing my studies, I read loads of books about leadership. And the, the way this came to be, the way this idea for the book came to be is um, my son, my elder son, was just finishing university, thinking about, you know, what job to go into. So I went with him to one of the big bookstores to look for books that might help him. And there was hundreds of books. There's thousands of management books. But there was nothing that told him Look, this is what to expect on your first day and, you know, at, at work. And that made me think about my first day at work. My first degree was in management sciences. You know, I covered finance, accountancy, statistics, law, organizational psychology, organizational sociology, international business. Very, very interesting. Taught by some really, really top guys. First day, my real job, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I just spent three years listening to some of the smartest business brains. And I didn't even, what's an HR department? What do the IT guys do? What's a good receive note? What do the blokes in stores do? Why do they wear a brown coat? So, and, and Russell uh, had shadowed me in one of, in, in one of the jobs, and one, one of the business I was running for as part of his, um, you know, the school kids do this. Yeah. As, yeah, like an work experience work experience yeah. yeah yeah and um after one of the meetings he said to me there's somebody there was some issue he said dad why don't you just fire the guy <laughs> i said you just can't fire somebody because you disagree with me you don't like them but he said that's what happens on the apprentice all the time <laughs> and i spoke to him and, and it, it was clear that he and his mates thought that that was that was real life. That's business is like. So it seemed to me there was an opportunity for something, a simple guide to what to expect. What would I like to have known on my first day at work? And whether that was working in an office, working in a, you know, in a takeaway, there was, it seemed to me there were some basic, simple fundamentals about what it would be really nice to know on that, that first day and that first couple of weeks in what can be a very strange and frightening and completely unknown environment. So that's really what, what got me thinking about it and what got me started on it. And when, it, when you sort of uh, targeting to uh, complete this, uh, this book then, towards the end of the year? Or toward the end of the year, Sonny. Yeah, that, that's okay. my aim is toward the end of the year. And a lot, I've, got, you know, I've got it all, all the chapters mapped out. I've got sure. all the key things mapped out. A lot of research, pretty much all the research done. Um, I was just looking at it again, um, actually this morning, um, and I, I was reading it and I thought, God, Colin, this is brilliant, but there's far too much of it. You know, you <laughs> and it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. I really enjoyed writing parts of it, you know, particularly. And what I've tried to do in it, and this is something that really struck me as well in discussing with my sons and their friends, and some research, something like recent research has shown something like 70% of young adults don't think business is a good thing. They don't think it's, it's, it's a power for good. Huge numbers of people don't trust business. And there's reasons not to. But there's also very good reason to understand what it has done for us over the years. So part of this, I've tried to 
you know, be perfectly honest about the failures, but also the fact that the reason why we're sitting here today in comfort is because, you know, over the years, people have built these things, have given us these. You only have to step back, you know, a hundred years or a couple of generations. and Life was bloody tough. Now, we didn't get from there to here by accident. You know, and there's a balance. And I think it's important to try and offset some of that real negativity that business seems to have these days. You know, I'm not ashamed yeah. of, of having worked in business. I'm not ashamed of having worked in the oil and gas industry. You know, of course there's issues, of course there's challenges. Mm. But I think, I think people need to understand what it's done for them over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's, there is the, what was it, the yin and the yang, the good and the bad and the bad and the good. And we have to be yeah. uh, receptive to the fact that without businesses, I think we'll, well, we'll might as well sort of um, keep on furlough for a long yeah. time, I guess. Um, yeah, what would be living, in, without business, we'd be living in a hole in the ground. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great stat, you know, that's, you know, there's something like a billion people have been dragged out of poverty over the last 20 years. Mm. Now, there's still a billion in poverty, but to take a billion people out of poverty, that hasn't happened through governments designing, you know, new systems and benefits. It's happened because wealth creation, that wealth creation yeah. comes from business. And we shouldn't yeah. be, you know, we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Um, you know, another interesting stat is that in the year, you know, in 1900, a, a teacher had to work something like, you know, a day to buy a dozen eggs. You know, and now a teacher can buy a dozen eggs with three minutes work. You know, it's life has changed. Life you know, has from, changed, yeah. And, exactly. and it, it hasn't been by accident. No. Now, um, w one of the things, and I've got to, I can't, I can't let you go without you telling me about the, uh, is it President Mobutu? I'm not sure, but anyway, we'll, we'll come on to that. Um, when we started doing this um, discussion, and I was tempting you to come on and talk about leadership. I was saying to you that um, I think it was Tony Blair who coined the expression, you're never alone with a microphone. And um, <laughs> uh, I think leaders have been known to make errors in the past. And I can think of our BP leader being on a yacht and saying, you know, mm. I wish it was all. And you know what happened there? Yeah, yeah. I want to get what? my life back. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And doing his moment of Titanic, yes. Um, yeah. So what do you, I mean, share us a story about the, uh, the president and uh, the paradigm shift that you, you experienced there. Well, I can tell you two brief, two brief stories about uh, presidents. One is when I was working in a country that, that shall be un, um, unmentioned. <laughs> um, we had, uh, working in the oil and gas industry, we had a chain of filling stations throughout the country. Uh, some of these were run by the company, some were run by agents. And a really nice business for a, a local guy to run one of these, but they're not very complicated. Um, you, maybe you've got half a dozen staff, you dip the tanks in the morning, you get your deliveries, you've got your meter, you dip the tanks in the evening, you reconcile them, you might have a little shop. So it's not very difficult to run, the, uh, to run a, one of these filling stations. We give you all the help that we can. One of our agents died, so we advertised in the paper for local businessmen who would like to become an, uh, uh, an agent. I made a huge number of applications. We winnowed them down, and I interviewed the, the, leading, the leading guys. Um, and there's one particular guy came in to see me, very, very pleasant, very jolly guy. Uh, and I was speaking to him, and within about five minutes, I knew this guy could never run a filling station. He'll never manage six people. So I very politely said, look, um, you know, thank you very much. 
I won't mention his name. Thank you very much, but you know, maybe maybe another time. He said, "Well, thank you for speaking to me." Within six months, there had been a change in the political situation of the country, and he was elected president. <laughs> this was a guy who I thought couldn't run a filling station; he's now running a country. And I had to go and see him sometime afterwards. And I was thinking to myself, "Oh my! God, I hope he doesn't remember. I hope he forgets when I turned him down for the filling station." So I went along to the presidential palace and um, ushered him into one room and another room and an ante room and eventually the meeting room. And eventually the president himself came in, very pleasant guy. And he said, ah, Colin. And I thought, <laughs> I'm dead. And he said, I remember you. You turned me down for that filling station job. <laughs> and he said, and that was the best thing it's any." That's ever happened to me. <laughs> the best thing anyone's ever done. Because if I'd taken it, I'd still be running the filling Over station. station yeah. And now look at me. Look at me. I'm running the country. <laughs> I'm running the country. <laughs> uh, and the other one was, um, again, a very challenging situation where I, I was working in a country where the main language was, was French. And my French, I'd only just arrived. My French was awful. Really awful. I still haven't got the grips with it. And uh, the guy was running the, com the, uh, the company had gone away on holiday and I was standing in for him. And the country, because of its mismanagement of its energy resources and its funding and its foreign exchange, was running out of fuel. And we only had about two days left of fuel in the entire country. You know, and when a country runs out of fuel, it stops and it's horrific. So I was called to see, actually, the, it was the, pres the, uh, the prime minister. And I went to the prime ministerial uh, mansion on the outskirts of town. And it was the rainy season, so I can, I can see it as if it was yesterday. I'm sitting here at the table, the Prime Minister is sitting over there, the other members of the Cabinet are sitting around, and the Minister of Energy is sitting opposite me. And my French wasn't good, but it was good enough to know they were giving me a huge amount of grief. How dare you come here? You're killing the country. You're raping the country. We're all going to starve. And who do you think you are? And every time that he did this, this solid gold Cartier you know, flicked up to the end of his wrist, which must be worth, you know, I don't know, $100,000 or something. Anyway, <laughs> it then started to rain. And even though this is the prime ministerial palace, the drips were starting coming through the, uh, the, the ceiling. So um, there were servants were then running around putting buckets behind the chairs. There's all drip, 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 drip. And it was quite surreal. At the end of the meeting, the prime minister said, well, look, I think you understand our position. Anybody like any champagne? So he brought out the Krug champagne, and we all got stuck into the bottles of Krug in this very surreal, very <laughs> weird atmosphere. And we finished the bottles, and I was about to go, and he said to me, "So one thing, Colin, the, the press and the television are outside. I'd like you to do an interview and tell them everything's okay. And I thought, everything's not okay. You know, we're going to, we're right, we've got two days. We're only got a day and a half now. And I, so I went out into this, this little room and the, the, the TV cameras were there and I did this live interview on television, which was one of the single worst experiences of my entire life. Crikey. You know, what well, do I say? I didn't understand a word they were saying in French. My French was absolutely awful. It was, it was, and sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat reliving that nightmare. <laughs> well, all, all I can say is Colin Auburn's Messi Trebian. I hope this was nothing <laughs> as great an ordeal as that, but I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. And also, I get it. I understand why the people that I spoke to said that you're a very, very um, 
nice person to work for <laughs> because you certainly are approachable and I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I hope I look forward to your book coming out and I think there's a lot that we can learn from there. Certainly about knowing your customer, being approachable, don't be hard faced, be human, be understanding, be compassionate and empathize. Yeah. Colin O'Burns, all I can say is thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sam. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and all and the hope, very best. Thank you. And I hope to get you back again soon. That'd be great. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thanks, Sonny. Bye. Bye. Thanks for stopping by. Now, along with live events, I aim to produce a video a week on a host of topics focusing on technical, leadership, and general chit-chat. So, if you like what you see, please subscribe. There's a clickable button on the side here, and I'll catch up with you next time. Thanks.